Good morning. Is it working now? Okay. A couple things. Tomorrow night, uh, we're going to continue once a month, fourth Monday, to pray for souls. Uh, so if you can at all come out. In fact, I was watching a service, talking to Wayne about this. Um, for what? No, it's a fourth. Is it first? So it's not this Monday. Okay. I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> I got it in the notes and everything. It must be. It's just not true. So not next, not tomorrow night, but the following Monday night. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'll put that away. There it is. Uh, tomorrow night's the board meeting. That's right. Okay. Yeah. They might be praying that I get saved. <laughs> I do want to also point out these two bowls are our prayer bowls. The one in the middle is called our trumpet bowl. The trumpet bowl are anything the Lord has answered for, for, from you uh, that you've prayed for or we've been praying for, and we have a few of those. And the prayer bowls are for you to fill out the prayer request for 2023. Or there's another one in the back of your chair that also you can put in there. And I hope as we're going through these, this uh, time together on Sundays that prayer be envelops much of what it is. Great time of worship this morning, by the way. It's fantastic. So we come to worship, we come to hear the word, but we come to pray. My house shall be called a house of prayer. So um, anyway, please fill them out. We've got, I don't know how many we have now, um, 400 and something already that we're praying through. Usually about once a month, each one is prayed for by an individual personally. So there you have it. Would you stand? Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read the word, I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Mark chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13. The gospel, repentance, and the righteousness of God. That's what we're going to talk about. So in verse 13, Jesus, then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And he passed, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts, the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thankful for the way that you speak to us, that you want to speak to us, and that you are so delighted 
to have this relationship with each and every one of us individually where we can have fellowship with you. We can know you. We can walk with you. And, Lord, how that is so life-changing as far as our relationships with one another, even as we were listening about marriage and our families. Lord, we are asking in Jesus' name that we might hear, or hear ourselves from you this morning, that our lives might be changed, that we would be the ones that are impacting our families, our children, our workplaces. Fill us, I pray, with your Holy Spirit. Bless this time that I prepared, went in preparing this. Break it fresh. Feed us. We're hungry. And we know, Lord, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So bless now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the gospel of repentance and the righteousness of God is what I want to talk about. T. Austin Sparks is a favorite daily devotional of Greg Parker that he often emails me. This is from Friday's Daily Open Windows. He, John 3, 5, in the God's Word translation says, I can guarantee this, Jesus said this, I can guarantee this truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. So he writes this, no one has ever yet been volitionized into the kingdom of God. That is, so appealed to in their wills to make a decision and to determine to be in the kingdom of God as by the strength of that decision and that determination to have got through. It cannot be done. A great deal of mistake has been made in that connection. To exercise their own reason and their own feelings and their own wills as though that would regenerate, regenerate them. Thus, interest and activity in Christianity is one thing, but being in the kingdom of, is quite another. You can have all the interest in Christianity without being in the kingdom. The only way in is by our receiving divine life as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And that, beco and that becomes the new basis of the new creation. It constitutes our being in what is called the kingdom of God, unquote. He is sharing there uh, really right along the lines of what we're going to look at this morning as far as the gospel, repentance, and the righteousness of God. So it says there in verse 13, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So Levi, sitting at the tax office, probably a customs agent, charging import duties was his, was his job. Capernaum, verse 1, that's where we are, was situated close to some important trade routes. So they needed these men in place as tax collectives, customs agents. Levi was a publican, in the New King James calls it a publican, which is simply a tax collector. So this whole job was a franchise deal. It was a thing where he got a cut from what he collected. So tax collectors, like Levi, became rich at the expense of their Jewish, in this case, their Jewish brothers. Often they were corrupt, and by it, very rich. Many were loan sharks. They were fraudulent in being coercive and threatening people. So Levi was not liked by the Romans because he was a Jew. Levi was not liked by the Jews because he worked for the Romans. He was in the service of Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee and Perea. So this is the situation. This is the position he's in, his job. So he would be despised by the Jews as a traitor. He would be considered like a Nazi informant. 
Now, we don't know if Levi was a very dishonest man. It would be difficult not to be, much like going into politics. But there are always exceptions, thank God. He may be the exception, but whatever Levi was, he would be no longer. When Jesus called Levi without delay, he arose and followed him. And that was no small decision. Unlike the fishermen, when Levi was left his job, he would not be able to return. He was burning the bridges to follow Jesus. Now, what's beautiful is his more familiar name is Matthew, which means gift from God. And Matthew began to experience in his life the gift of God in Jesus Christ. So as now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. So Levi, this tax collector, throws a feast for Jesus. So we read in Matthew chapter 9, same story, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Luke tells us, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. So Levi calls his friends, invites them over. Now, who is he going to invite? He's going to invite a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. At this time in his life, friends, these friends were who he was associated with. And so there were a great number of tax collectors. So the question I have to ask myself, and I would ask you to ask you is, who are the sinners in your life? Who are the others in your life, in my life, that don't know Christ? Or maybe they're interested in Christ. And the challenge that I have to say to myself is, what about inviting them over? Well, first of all, do you have them? Are you aware of them? Do you have any kind of relationship with them? Do I have any kind of relationship with them? And I will say to you, it used to be, when I first got saved, I was surrounded by a bunch of workmen, construction guys. I was known as Brother Kev. And every, we'd sit down at lunch, there were 15 to 20 of us around this circle, usually with lunch, and it would many times come down to me talking about Jesus is coming again. I was Brother Kev. And so I was much more connected to people who aren't saved. It's not the case now anymore for me. So I have to really intentionally say, who are they? Who are the people in my life? Now, I have many in my own family that are sinners, that need Christ. Who are they? And then the question is, how about inviting them over? And then the question is, how about talking to Jesus? And why, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So a challenge to throw out there to begin. The gospel, repentance, and the righteousness of God. So notice verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him sitting with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to the disciples, not to Jesus, <laughs> they said, hey, how is it that he, gets, he, gets, he eats and drinks with tax collectors? How is it? Now, the scribes were the masters of the Hebrew law. They were lawyers. They were teachers, they were editors, they were jurists. Pharisees were the most influential religious party of that day. 
deeply devoted to religiosity, if you will, and keeping the Mosaic law. They lived strictly regulated lives, at least outwardly, meticulous to maintain an outward sense of piety. To even touch a, quote, sinner, which would be everyone that isn't them, to even touch a sinner was not allowed. And so when they're walking in the streets, they gather up all their robes and put them tight so that their robes wouldn't, wouldn't actually touch one of these sinners. Jesus, however, was quite the opposite. And that did not go well with the scribes and Pharisees. Again, Mark is pointing out this growing animosity. So Jesus, eating and drinking with sinners, was seen as being one with them. So how is it? Jesus would say, very well, thank you. How are you? How is it that you're doing this to the disciples? But Jesus knew all about it. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The truly righteous need no repentance. The problem is, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way, together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Clearly, the scribes and Pharisees did not understand that. They boasted in their righteousness. And they truly were righteous. The problem was it was a self-righteousness. A boasting righteousness. And let me say to you and myself, that gets you nowhere with God. Nowhere. Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Our own righteousness falls deadly short of the needed righteousness of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, but we all are like unclean, we are all an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Our righteousness like are like filthy rags. So Jesus had come to call sinners, not compliment the self-righteous, Hardly. In Matthew chapter 12, then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places of feasts, at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. He's hardly complimenting them or condoning anything about it. In Matthew 23, then Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their words, for they say and do not do. Hypocrisy. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. Self-righteousness. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. Oh, they just soak it in. 
Jesus condemns them seven times in Matthew. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Self-righteousness. Boastful self-righteousness. See, Jesus saw right through them. Below the surface, they were diehard hypocrites. They were taking advantage of the powerless by using outward piety to deceive and their inward lust for power to control them. This is what's in their hearts. That's why Jesus said, woe to you. Jesus had come to call sinners and call out self-righteous hypocrites. People say, well, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Read Matthew 23. He has something to say to this hypocrisy, to this self-righteousness, to this condescending attitude toward others. They couldn't even see they were worse than who they thought were the worst. In Luke chapter 8, 18, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. It goes together. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and, pr- and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twi- twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not a driver like that guy. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his hand, eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. That's a broken heart. That's one that gets it, understands it. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. In the brokenness of our sinfulness, when we begin to bow our hearts before God and say, be merciful, God is all over that with his love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Prayer I pray now because I heard it, forget when I heard it. Lord, I think it's a song, it is. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Let me see things the way you see them, with a broken heart. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the others, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel, repentance and the righteousness of God. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen, Jesus is the great physician. Dr. Jesus. The sickness is sin and it's terminal. All are infected and all are dying. The prescription is repentance. It leads to the cure of God's forgiveness and listen, and with it his righteousness. The sinner is made well. Is a sinner who humbles him or herself in repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the healing given to us. By his stripes, we are healed. The sinner is made well is a sinner who by putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is forgiven and declared righteous by God through faith. We'll look at that a little more in depth in a moment. All other righteousness 
all the righteousness as, as Isaiah says, and there are a boatload of them, are like filthy rags. Sinful man has no righteousness in himself whatsoever. You and I have no righteousness in ourselves whatsoever that needs to be imputed to us if we will be saved in the presence of God at all. Dr. Jesus made the perfect diagnosis and the perfect prescription, repentance. Jeremiah rebuked the false prophets of his day because they were worthless, if you will, doctors. Jeremiah 6.14 repeated again in 8.11, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly. Might have made them feel good for a moment. Saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They were saying, hey, no worries. Things are going to be okay. No, they're not. They're not. God was calling through Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was calling his, his nation to repentance. A doctor can have a spot-on diagnosis. Prescribe the medicine that has been proved to cure. But if that patient will not do what the doctor says, he or she might as well have not even gone to the doctor. There's three kinds of sinners. Those who hear Jesus, trust him by following his orders, and are saved from their sin. The second are those who do not know about Jesus and are dead and dying in their sin. That's why the gospel must be preached. The third is those who hear Jesus but refuse to follow his orders and either are either in denial or in defiance as they're hopelessly in their hopelessly sinful condition. These scribes and Pharisees were defiant. Matthew Henry said this, with God through Christ there is mercy to pardon the greatest sins. And grace to sanctify the greatest sinner. Great sin and scandal before conversion are no bar to great gifts, graces, and advancements after, unquote. In Romans chapter 5, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, Adam, so also by one man's obedience, Christ, many will be, look at it, made righteous. I say, yeah. Made right with God. Sins removed, cleansed, and justified by God and righteous in his sight. He goes on, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace Literally, superabounded. By grace, we've been saved through faith. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I say again, yeah. It's the gospel. It's our righteousness imputed by our repentance and coming to Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. The disciples of John the Baptist were fasting. 
Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, fasting is a time of inner reflection, soberness, and mourning. The law prescribed just one fast on the day of, on the day of atonement. And it was to be a time to afflict your souls. It was a time of deep reflection and understanding what was needed because of sin. The day of atonement. Now, there were other fasts that were voluntary. Were added every Monday and Thursday. They had these fasts. That's why it says in Luke we just read, the Pharisees prayed themselves saying, I fast twice a week. I keep those things. I do those things. Yeah. The spiritual discipline book that we're going through with both the men and women has a whole discipline on a chapter on the discipline of fasting. He writes this: Does Jesus come to mind when you think of fasting and fasters? Jesus both practiced and taught fasting. Christian fasting is a believer's voluntary absence from food for spiritual purposes. So just tuck that a little bit away. That's why, and fasting is. Jesus taught that. But, and Jesus is not against fasting at the proper time and when properly observed. So he gives clarity to this whole thing. Moreover, Matthew 6 when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces. They may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their well, what are you doing? Oh, I'm fasting. It's like Eeyore. Oh, yeah, fasting. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in the secret place will reward you openly. There'll be evidence. They might not know why, but something happened. He continues in, in the book, the only observer of your fast should be the secret one. The problem is not whether another person knows or asks about your fast, but whether you want him or her to know or ask so you can appear more spiritual, unquote. That is a very normal trap. I want to look spiritual. I want to be seen as being spiritual. Jesus was not against fasting at the proper time, but this was not the proper time. And Jesus said to him, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So Jesus with them was gladness, not sadness. Jesus with them was celebration, not somberness, not mourning. Now, wedding feast necessitated seven days of festivity. When there was a wedding, the bridegroom. The attendants, the friends of the bridegroom, were responsible to carry on, plan those festivities. So to fast would be out of step with the occasion. The bridegroom is with them. It would, it would be to not understand the occasion. Not the question, why, why don't they fast? Well, don't you understand the occasion? The bridegroom is with them. The festivities are being planned. First John, I love this, these four verses in the beginning of 1 John. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon or gazed upon or scrutinized and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
The life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. I, I, it just kind of moves me to think. As John's writing this and looking back. And realize they were walking around with the Son of God. Handling him, talking to him, being with him physically and having this fellowship together. And looking back on that, the whole scene, all the crucifixion, the resurrection, he's looking back, we, we, we were with him. We handled him. Do you think that that was a, joy, a, a, a somber occasion? He said, that your joy may be full. Joyous. The occasion is not one of somberness and soberness. It's of celebration. But they, the days will come, verse 20, when the bride will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. But they'll, he'll be violently taken away from them and crucified, killed. Soon it would be the right occasion. Soon they would fast. It would be right because now what happened, it seems so wrong. And so they said, what happened? I, I believe they didn't even want to eat for three days. So overtaken by grief and sorrow. There's an occasion. This is the occasion, one of them. Their bridegroom was killed. The promised one was dead. But right now, as Jesus is talking, it's celebrate time. And it went both ways. Jesus loved being with them. Loved being with sinners and tax collectors. Loved to be there for them and love them and preach to them. Time to celebrate. Johnny and Megan are getting married soon. We will not be attending with long faces. In that book again, Jesus said the time would come when his disciples will fast. That time is now. Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, is away in heaven. His people fast as part of their longing, joy, and anticipation of his return. How many would say amen to that? Christian fasting, wrote John Piper, quote, at its root is the hunger of a, home, homesick, the hunger of a homesickness for God, unquote. And that is true. Sometimes fast is a means of just drawing close to God to renew that closeness, to renew that, that hunger for him. The gospel, repentance, and the righteousness of God. No one sews an unshrunk cloth in an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now it seems to me that these two verses are an illustration of the previous eight. Or maybe a caption placed under the two previous snapshots, eating with sinners and fasting. Or maybe they're an accompanying snapshots of a patched up gold garment and a bursted, ruined old wineskin. 
a new patch on an old garment. What Jesus said, it pulls away from the tear is made worse. No one sews. In other words, it's not a repair that is needed. It's repentance. No one sews. The righteousness of God is not a patch to fix up the filthy rags of my self-righteousness. The righteousness of God is not, a, is not to join filthy rags of my self-righteousness, to join them. It's not to validate the filthy rags of my self-righteousness. The righteous God is not to spare the filthy rags of my self-righteousness. The righteousness of God is not to extend the life of the filthy rags of my self-righteousness. No, it pulls away the tear is made worse. In other words, to understand the righteousness of God is to know just how utterly and hopelessly sinful I am in and of myself. Filthy rags, tattered garment. That God's righteousness requires perfection and have no sewing in or patching in anything otherwise. You see, this is not what God does. The truth is there are two ways a person can be saved, and only two. Number one, live a perfect life for God. The problem is, that's impossible. We're born defective. In Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God is revealed from the law. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is a righteousness that's apart from the law of God, which is the perfect expression of perfection, the law of God. But man is sinful. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and all who believe, for there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All are imperfect right from the womb. So that's the first way. Live a perfect life for God. The second is trust in Jesus who lived a perfect life for me. To die on a cross for my sin and therefore impute to me his righteousness. He died that I might live. He died that you might live. That you might walk with God in imputed righteousness and freedom to love him and walk with him all day long. The prophet Isaiah said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Then he pictured it as a wedding. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. There's this relationship. We've been imputed the righteousness of God and the, and the, the white garments that Revelation mentioned several times. Through what? 
through Jesus dying on a cross and thereby giving to me his righteousness for all of my sinfulness. The book of Romans has been called the fifth gospel. We looked at this last week. I felt it was important to look at it again. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the, that's everyone. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. This righteousness is imputed to us. In Romans 4, and therefore, I, it was accounted him, Abraham, for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Rome, and Abraham just believed God for the impossible. Believed God for what he said he would do. It was accounted for righteousness. Putting his faith, trusting God for his promise. But also for us. It shall be imputed to us who what? Believe in him who raised up the, Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered because of our offenses. Was raised because of our justification. Romans 10, last brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel that they may be saved. Paul's heart beat for the Israelites. He loved them. They were, he was one of their brethren. He says, well, I want them to be saved. For I bear them which they, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, they being ignorant of God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They're thinking that they can get and have a relationship with God through their own righteousness. And that is impossible. It's to not understand it. And it was difficult because they were a chosen special people by God. But they were chosen by him to be a light to the world of who God is. And all the ceremonies and all the temple and all the tabernacle was to, be, to show the world the centrality of God in their lives, their national life, that he might then reach them with the same glory that he was reaching them with. In verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To everyone who believes, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, this righteousness they thought they were keeping, the law deals with the heart. The man who does them shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. Notice, what do I have to do to make this happen? That is to bring Christ down from above. Who will ascend in the abyss? That is to bring Christ up. What do I have to do? How do I get this? But what does it say? The word is near in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. For if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. You will be saved. For with the mouth, for the heart one be these unto what? Righteousness. And with the mouth confession made unto salvation. Something happens in my heart. It's linear. Something happens in my heart. I realize I need to repent. I need to get right with God. And thus I confess with my mouth and I am saved. He goes on. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How were you saved? You called in the name of the Lord. You confessed with the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You understood in your heart that there was sin in the way of your relationship with God, and that sin 
judgment, condemnation is death, and you realize, I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved. Maybe you're here or you're listening, and that's you. I came back to Christ out of fear of going to hell. And that is a legitimate thing that happens in many people's lives. And it is not legitimate. It's true. There is no escaping the condemnation of hell if there's no repentance to God for sin. So many scriptures I could read. I'll read this one from Philippians. What things were gained to me? This is Paul the Apostle. What things were gained to me? These I've counted lost for Christ, that I may gain Christ and be found in not have my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. In other words, the law simply explodes the heart, this, this mind, this thinking that I'm somehow righteous. No, the law deals with the heart. The law says, what's your motive? What's going on? What are you thinking? Not what you're doing outwardly, because the scribes and Pharisees were masters at outward righteousness. But Jesus comes along and says, hold on a second, you're hypocrites. You say this, but do that. You preach this, but don't do it. And he's nailing that, and for them, it was woe unto you, because Jesus knew in their hearts there was no repentance. But the same weight can bear down on someone's heart about sin and not being right with God and the fear of death and the fear of hell. And that is a, a weight that God allows for the purpose of you, yourself, understanding the cure is repentance, which leads to the righteousness of God for you. <laughs> to stand with him and be right with him by faith in what Christ has accomplished for me. Am I perfect? <laughs> Are you perfect? That's even louder. <laughs> And you know it. The difficulty in being a Christian is this idea that somehow when you become a Christian, it's all floating down the, the, you know, the nice little waves. No, it's swimming upstream from the world's currents of sin and selfishness. Any dead fish can float downstream. It's a live fish that now begins to realize, I've got to put in the effort. It takes work, as Wayne and I were talking. It's work. This process of sanctification and God changing our lives. But we start as victories, as victors. We start in being right with God. And when sin comes along, I confess my sin, 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Applying the blood, applying the cross, applying the finished work of Jesus Christ to my sin is an ongoing, daily, minute-by-minute need that I understand that Romans chapters 1 through 8 lays it all out. How is it that I can overcome these things how is it I'm to see these things and there is this battle going on but I begin as a victor I begin as right with God through Jesus Christ does that mean I just live like I want because of the grace oh no Paul addresses that in Romans I, I would challenge you read Romans 1 through 8 and ask the Holy Spirit to instruct you in how this thing works this righteousness, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none good, no, not one. All in Romans, the early chapters. None good, no, not one. They're all going out of the way. Together become unprofitable. There's no fear of God in their eyes. The heart of man, unredeemed, unregenerate, is sinful to the core. The hymn, Rock of Ages. I just, I'm going to put it up there for us to read. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. 
Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to the worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And then there's Boudreaux the Baptist. Boudreaux was a Cajun Highlander from Rapidese Parish in central Louisiana. He was an older single gentleman who was born and raised a Baptist living in South Louisiana. Each Friday night after work, he would fire up his outdoor grill and cook a venison steak. Now all of Boudreaux's neighbors were Catholic, and since it was Lent, which it is now actually, they were forbidden from eating meat on Fridays. The delicious aroma from the grilled venison steaks was causing such a problem for the Catholic faithful that they finally talked to their priest. The priest came to visit Boudreaux and suggested that Boudreaux convert to Catholicism. After several classes and much study, Boudreaux attended Mass. And as the priest sprinkled holy water over him, he said, You were born a Baptist and raised a Baptist, but now you are a Catholic. Boudreaux's neighbors were greatly relieved until Friday night arrived, and the wonderful aroma of grilled venison filled the neighborhood. The priest was called immediately by the neighbors, and as he rushed into Boudreaux's yard, clutching a rosary and prepared to scold him, he stopped in amazement and watched. There stood Boudreaux, clutching a small bottle of water, which he carefully sprinkled over the grilling meat and chanted, You was born a deer, you was raised a deer, but now you are catfish. Uh, new wine and old wineskins. It bursts, spills, and is ruined. No one sows, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. This is not what God does. That's not what he's doing. New wine must be put into new wineskins. That's what God does. You must be born again. In being born again, we're new creations in Christ. God makes all things new. And into that newness, into that new creation that we are in Christ, he pours out of his Holy Spirit at salvation. Prior, uh, after salvation, book of Acts. So we are, in a sense, these new vessels that God has created us to be and filled us with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. I think in Ephesians 5.18, it's interesting. Do not be drunk with wine, but be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. This, whole, this is a huge area. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. And he says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. We are walking in the Spirit. We're walking with this newfound power from God because we have been created new and given this new wine of the new covenant that we might really embrace this walk with God in this life 
in such a way that it's filled with joy. Oh, we got troubles. How many don't have trouble? But we have the Holy Spirit. We've been made new in Christ. And so this, God is not taking the old things and refashioning them, reattach. No, he's making us, he made us new creations in Christ. And so our sinfulness and all those things that were true have now been put in the place of old, past. So we're taking communion this morning. Perfect place, perfect time to just draw near to God with your heart. I'm going to, I know most of us in this room are believers. I trust all of us are. But if you're not, this ceremony that we're doing, this uh, taking of communion, is for the believer. And the reason that it's important that you know that is because by taking the bread and taking the cup, we are acknowledging that we agree with God about our need for forgiveness. That we agree with God that Jesus is the means by which we are forgiven. That we agree with God that his death on that cross paid the penalty for my sin and through repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, I now understand it, I get it, and so we do this in remembrance of him. So if you're not a believer, what the Bible says, you're actually drinking condemnation to yourself because you're taking these things and yet you haven't taken that step of repentance toward God. So I would say to you who are watching, to anyone that's here, if that's you, you can receive Jesus Christ right as these emblems are being passed out. Right now. If I can have the worship team come. Right now in this room, there's, it's filled with believers. We're going to be taking this communion. But if you're here and you haven't made that step of repentance toward God, you can do that right now. And I want us all just to bow our heads a moment before they're passed out. And if that's you and you want to receive Jesus Christ right now before we take communion, that's you. This is between you and God. It's not between you and me or you and anyone else in this room. This is between you and God. Most important decision you'll ever make. It's a decision between the the difference between life and death. So I'm going to bow my head. A prayer doesn't save you. Jesus does. But an honest, sincere prayer and crying out to God, calling the name of the Lord, is what God is asking for any and all of us. It's in repentance. So pray with me. Father, I pray that you forgive me of my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I know that I deserve death and hell. But I'm asking for your mercy to forgive me because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I ask now that you come and be my Lord and Savior, that I would follow after you, be obedient to you, walk with you. I ask, Lord, now that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit and save my soul from death into your glorious kingdom, even now, in Jesus' name, amen. So as these emblems are passed out, just, just, uh, just take those. There is a cellophane thing on the top, just so you know, just take that off. That's the first one to take off. You can, uh, and then uh, I'll come up and we'll take that together.